So we do have an understanding that we do believe that the, the these structures are kind of a foundation for behavior because without their activity, whether it's located in the similar spot or another, that those behaviors will not uh, manifest themselves. Okay, and so we do know that this is the machinery that 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 is is is. Uh, associated with the ability to do certain functions. So let's go through um, starting with the most basic structure of the, 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 the nervous system, which is the neuron. Okay. Um, and I'm hoping for many, this might just be a review, but the neuron is the basic cell of the nervous system, also called the nerve cell. Okay. We approximately have 100 billion in the brain. Now, I, I just want to put this into conceptualization for everyone. 100 billion cells, and each of those cells has some amount of nodes of information. And those 100 billion cells are connected to other cells, creating a huge circuit system. All right. And Still today, in fact, uh, most uh, um, uh, scientists who, who work with artificial intelligence and, and, and computer processing um, uh, think that it will not be until around 2030, 2040, that we actually have a supercomputer that meets the memory capacity and the functional capacity of a single human brain. In fact, um, um, the last analysis uh, that was done is if you filled the state of Montana with uh, computers everywhere and you stacked them three stories high uh, and they were really good computers <laughs> and they had the latest processing chip, chip all of those computers would still not equal the processing and memory power of a single human brain. So think about that as, 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 as we move forward about how amazing this system really is, okay? Um, the other important cell that we need to talk about is what called glial cells. Uh, these are cells that uh, uh, basically nerve cells, uh, many of the other cells in our body can regenerate ourselves so literally if we were if our body was synchronously uh on the same uh, cycles so our bone and our skin and our blood vessels and everything were on uh, the same uh, regenerative cycle human beings truly have a brand new body every about seven to ten years Okay, because that's the basic cycle of regeneration of cells in the body. That's why, you know, we, we, we have dry skin, we brush off uh, skin cells because new cells have come in. And, and the same things happen with our bones and, and, and uh, our blood vessels and all of those different systems. The only cells that don't regenerate are nerve cells. So they require a support cell in order to clean them, to support them, um, and, and, and the like. So, and we're finding that glial cells are really important to them when we start talking about things like memory loss, 
such as dementias, different types of dementias. A lot of them are associated with uh, the glial cells um, diminishing and then those, those nerve cells dying off. Um, when we talk about things like um, uh, being able uh, to learn and those types of things, we find that glial cells are also important. So they, they have a very important function, but these two work together to keep our nervous system going and um, keep everything going. It is because of the interconnectedness of these nerves that give rise to things like our intelligence and our consciousness, okay, and everything that we'll be talking about in this class. All right, I'm just going to play this short video on because there are different types of nerve cells, uh, but I don't think I um, made it so you could hear the sound. Just so we know, there's about four, I believe, four different types of, of nerve cells that we need to understand. Even though we're going to focus on the most common one, it's important to understand that we do have some different types that have different functions throughout the body. So let's take a look at this as far as uh, the different types. I'm Sirigan, Biology and Medicine videos. Please make sure to subscribe, join the forming group for the latest videos. Please visit Facebook, I'm Sirigan. Please like and here comes ask questions, answer questions, and personal interesting things, including your artworks. And you can also change the quality settings to the highest one for better graphics. In this neurology video, we will look at the neuron. The neurons are the communication cells. They receive signals. What you see, smell, hear is thanks to a group of sensory neurons. Neurons also send out signals or information. When we move our hands every time we breathe is because of commands being sent via efferent neurons. So neurons are a big deal and because of this we have billions of neurons in our body. Here's a typical structure of a neuron. It consists of dendrites which receive an information, a signal. The cell body, the soma, the axon hillock, the axon where information or the signal in a form of an impulse is propagated through. There can be myelin which wraps around the axon to help in insulation and speeding up the impulse. And all the impulse will end at the synaptic terminal where the impulse, the information, is passed on to a target cell. So looking at it, an input signal is received by the dendrites gets passed onto the cell body for integration and then the output signal is released from the synaptic terminal to a target cell for a, a specific response, a desired effect response. The target cell in this case is another neuron but this neuron is different in that it is an unmyelinated neuron. It has no myelin sheath wrapping around it. This means that the propagation of the impulse along the axon is much slower. When you have a neuron with myelin sheaths, the impulse travels much faster. But now you might ask, be asking yourself, how is the information from one uh, cell, uh, from a neuron, is passed on to another cell? Well, let's zoom into this area here, where these two cells are close to each other, where they synapse with each other. Here we have part of the synaptic terminal of the first neuron and its presynaptic membrane. And here is part of the dendrite of the second neuron and its postsynaptic membrane.
the gap between the first and second neuron is known as a synaptic cleft. In the, ends of the, in the ends of the synaptic terminal region, like here, we find many mitochondria and vesicles containing what's called neurotransmitters. These neurotransmitters are, are released for communication, for the communication process between cells. What happens is that when a signal arrives at the dendrites of the neuron, it will create an impulse that will carry this information and propagate it towards the terminal. This impulse is an action potential. The action potential will cause, once it arrives at the terminal, synaptic terminal, it will cause the vesicles here to release the neurotransmitters into the synaptic cleft, where the neurotransmitters will then bind onto the cell's postsynaptic membrane. So we can say that the synapse is the site for intracellular communication. And seeing that the postsynaptic membrane of the postsynaptic uh, cell belongs to the dendrite of a neuron, it will receive this information and then create a another action potential that will propagate along the axon towards the uh, synaptic terminal. So a new input signal is received by the dendrites. It will be integrated in the soma, and then an, and then it will the information, uh, the action potential, the information will pass along the axon towards the terminal, and um, will be passed on as an output signal via neurotransmitters that will target a particular cell. It can be a neuron again, or it can be a muscle cell or an endocrine cell, any kind of cell, depending on where the neuron is located and what its desired response uh, wants to be, what, what effect it wants to cause. So now that we have an idea of how signals are being passed all around our body, and how we receive signals all around our body, let's learn more about the soma of a neuron and how the neurotransmitters are packaged up, are made. So here we have a close-up of the soma of the neuron. We have the nucleus containing the genetic material, the rough endoplasmic reticulum around it with bound ribosomes and free ribosomes for protein synthesis. We have the Golgi apparatus for packaging, and we have the lysosome. Now the protein neurotransmitters are synthesized in the rough endoplasmic reticulum by ribosomes and then packaged up by the Golgi apparatus. So here we have the rough endoplasmic reticulum synthesizing new neurotransmitters that passes them um, onto the Golgi that will then package them up in vesicles. These vesicles containing neurotransmitters from the Golgi are then brought to the synaptic terminal. Here we have the synaptic uh, bulb of the synaptic terminal that we're zooming into. So these vesicles containing the neurotransmitters and also uh, mitochondria, they move down via microfilaments or microtubules and they move to the terminal bulb here. The vesicles are in the synaptic bulb where they can be released via exocytosis to the synaptic cleft when an action potential arrives. The neurotransmitters can be reabsorbed from the synaptic cleft and form vesicles. And then these vesicles can be recycled. They can travel back to the soma of the neuron where they were fused with lysosomes 
the lysosomes will digest these vesicles for recycling. So neurons are a big deal, what we just talked about, for uh, cellular communication, for sending out signals, and also receiving signals, receiving information. These neurons um, I just drew is actually a typical structure or typical shape of, an, of a specific type of neuron, um, an efferent somatic neuron, that is. However, there are a few types of structures neurons can be categorized into. And these structural categories, it can be determined by which part of the nervous system the neurons belong to, if that made any sense. I'll just draw uh, a diagram to explain this. So the nervous system, remember, it can be divided into two major parts. That is the central nervous system and the peripheral nervous system. Now I drew two peripheral nervous systems because the peripheral nervous system consists of a sensory division and a motor division, or better yet, an efferent division. The sensory division of the peripheral nervous system consists of sensory neurons that look something like this. It has dendritic branches here, the axon on either side of the soma, the cell body, and then the synaptic terminal here. This type of neuron is categorized under the structure of a unipolar neuron. Now we also have another type of sensory neuron which is slightly similar in that it also consists of dendritic branches, but the dendrite will extend to the soma. Then we have the axon and finally the synaptic terminal. This type of neuron is categorized under the structure of a bipolar neuron. As you can see, the unipolar and bipolar neuron are only slightly different. The bipolar neuron, we have two separate processes separated by the cell body. So we have the dendrite and then the axon on one end. The central nervous system consists of many interneurons. Interneurons, you can say, are neurons that bring signals within the central nervous system, so from the brain to the spinal cord, for example. But we also have interneurons that act as glial cells, helper cells. Anyway, these interneurons have some completely different structures to other neurons. An example of an interneuron is this, what I'm drawing. And it doesn't look like it has an axon, but only has a cell body in the center with many dendritic branches around it. This type of neuron is categorized under the structure of an anoxonic neuron. Then we have a multipolar neuron type, which contains dendritic branches on one end and then straight away in an axon terminal branch on the other, separated by the cell body. Some multipolar neurons on, in the central nervous system look slightly different than this, and we shall soon see what I am talking about. Now, the efferent division of the peripheral nervous system contains efferent neurons, motor neurons, which are all multipolar in structure. And this is, the, this is the type of neuron I drew in the beginning of this video. We can have efferent neurons with myelin wrapping around it, or we can have efferent neurons without myelin wrapping around it. Either way, both are multipolar in structure, in that it consists of dendritic branches, and then we have the cell body, and then the axon and terminal branches. As you can see, this is the other type of multi -neur multipolar neuron I was talking about in the central nervous system. It, 
the terminal branch doesn't have to be really close to the soma body. In the efferent division, the terminal branch is uh, extended with the axon. Hope that made sense. And anyway, that is the that was it for the neuron video for neurology. I hope you enjoyed it, and hopefully, I'll make a video on an action potentials or action potentials soon. Thank you. Arman Hasirangan, biology. Okay, so that was just kind of a, a quick review of uh, the, the different parts of the, the neuron and the nervous cells. And as you see, there's several different types. Um, and that the, the, the main thing that I want uh, us to get out of this conversation is understanding its structure, but understanding that, um, one, our brain system is what's called a chemical electrical reaction, okay, meaning that uh, it requires the, the neurotransmitters transmitting between uh, the, the, the nervous cells, which the, creates what he referred to as the action potential, which uh, using a chemical way of creating electrical impulse, uh, creates electrical impulse along the body of the axon of the cell, okay? And uh, a lot of times when we do uh, different types of brain scanning and stuff, that's the, what we're looking at is that electrical activity or that flow of uh, sometimes blood as well. So um, just to keep in mind when we're talking about dendrites and, and, and axons, those are the things that are communicating with each other. The soma is the cell body and the axon is what it travels along there. The myelin sheath is uh, that fatty layer, and what the myelin sheath does, okay, and I'll put this up here, is one, it protects the cell, okay, but two, it speeds up the, the action potential because the electricity skips from uh, node to node, okay. So uh, as an example, an unmyelinated uh, cell, if this were to represent um, the speed of the action, it would be like this, okay, is that it would uh, need to jump and it takes some time to get down the axon body. However, with myelin, it's a quick jump. And so it kind of speeds up that process. So what is the importance of, of this it is um, uh, a good example of importance of the myelin sheath is uh, it, it's associated with the uh, two important periods of life and, 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 and whatnot. One, it deals with puberty. And then two, it deals with uh, things like Alzheimer's disease and whatnot. And so let me kind of explain that really quick before we get on to the other processes. In about 2011, a group of uh, neuroscientists and neuropsychologists discovered that uh, our, our brain, which is largely myelinated on the exterior especially, and then we get into the gray matter where all of those other cells uh, um, sit, becomes largely myelinated. In fact, the majority of our brain becomes largely myelinated during about a six-week period during puberty, okay? Uh, which means that um, through childhood, our brain is going 25 miles per hour. And then within a flashpoint of period of time, our brain is literally going 5,000 miles per hour. Okay. 
And uh, knowing this, it kind of has explained kind of the things that happen. Um, um, things that happen when uh, we um, go through puberty period and, and, and why is it that children have slower uh, brains and I don't mean to say they're slower, slower brains than, than say um, 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 uh, adolescents and adults, okay? Well, uh, one, we think it has something to do with survival, all right? So, you know, if you think about having an unmyelinated uh, brain and let's say there's a car coming at you at 50 miles per hour, you don't want to sit there and sit there and process what you should do. You want a brain system that automatically uh, um, uh, um, activates and gets you out of the way of the car. And that's why a lot of children get injured with a car accident, with, with uh, getting hurt with vehicles and, and harmed in so many ways and why parental supervision is important because a lot of times they don't have that fast acting brain that gives them a fast reacting time to get out of the car that's coming at them very quickly. Uh, you, if you see a lot of movies with little kids and a car's coming towards them, they freeze. Uh, and that's literally because their brain is largely unmyelinated. But uh, the benefit in early childhood, if you think about um, what we learn in early childhood, we learn of lots. We learn how to walk. We learn how to talk. We learn how to interact with each other. We start learning things like writing and math and reading. And all of those things mainly happen in our childhood and elementary years. Uh, in fact, you know, if we, if we look at it uh, from a language perspective, now, I don't know about you, I don't remember remembering this many words, but linguists argue that between the age of zero and six, uh, the average child will learn 60,000 words. Uh, think about that. When, when we get to human development, we'll talk about what we do with that 60,000 words, but that's how much information is being learned during that period. And then over time, we start to whittle down those number of words to the ones we use most commonly, right? So, yeah, I'm not saying I definitely don't know 60,000 words. I know that um, I use the ones that I use most commonly now, which is much less. Uh, but that's kind of how it works. But what re required for that type of learning is a slower brain, a brain that processes that information. And so it's actually a really good thing when you have, you know, your three-year-old uh, nephew or child or whoever saying, uh, um, asking that question over and over and over again, because what they're doing is they're deeply processing the information you're providing. So when you have a child who's saying, um, um, uh, asks questions over and over, just know that that's part of their learning process. And, and there's actually a, a brain mechanism that we know about that is propagates that kind of investigation and need. Now, when we go into the adolescent years, and speaking of the myelin sheath and, and, and whatnot, and our brain becomes that myelinated and it's going really fast, sometimes our cognitive systems have not caught up, okay? And so, and a lot of times when an adolescent, you, you know, an adolescent does something wrong and you say, you know, why did you do that? And they say, I don't know. 
uh, a lot of times they probably don't know uh, because their their cognitive system is far behind their biological system, this very fast brain that is going really quickly. And sometimes their behaviors are far ahead of their actual cognitive realization of why they do some of the things they do. And from that, we have actually learned that the, the, there's a good parent-adolescent interaction with this, okay? One, it's a myth that the majority of adolescents go through this turmoil, chaotic uh, uh, area. It's, a, it's, a, it's more of a confirmation bias on our part to think that adolescents are these evil, bad people. Believe it or not, the majority of adolescents go through adolescence fine. Uh, it's, not a, it's not a big uh, turmoil, chaotic period. Uh, but there, we do notice there are some parental differences that can create uh, uh, situations where adolescents can have a chaotic uh, time and, and, and it really has to do, we think, with this myelination of the brain. So we find in the example, you know, the, the parent goes to the adolescents and goes, why don't you do that? And the uh, parent and the adolescent goes, well, I have no idea. Well, there, there's two parental uh, reactions here. There's two bipolar parental reactions. One parental reaction is, well, until you figure it out, go to your room uh, or, or, you know, they, they, they do some type of physical punishment saying, yeah, you're lying to me. You know why you did it, blah, blah, blah. That's one situation. The other situation is the parent who sits down and goes, okay, you don't know why you did what you did. So let's go through it. So they go through the situation with the adolescents from start to beginning to help the adolescent understand why they committed the behavior they did. We find that those few adolescents who uh, had chaotic uh, uh, adolescence and then there was a lot of turmoil had that first, mainly that first category of parent. Whereas uh, adolescents, and this doesn't fit all of them, but the majority of adolescents who had a, 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 a decent adolescence and there wasn't a lot of chaos and those kinds of things um, uh, tended to have that other parent that would sit down and go through why they did it. They did the family dinners, those types of types of things, excuse me. The other thing that this has, has shown is that uh, probably uh, issues with adolescents have far less to do with hormones and far more to do with this rapid myelination of the brain, okay? I mentioned that there's another thing that we should discuss about this electrical activity that goes along the brain, and that's things as we get older is, is uh, once we start losing glial cells and those types of things, our myelin sheath can be diminished. And in a specific type of dementia known as Alzheimer's disease, um, uh, the, 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 the main thing that attacks a, a nerve cell with Alzheimer's is a plaque. And that plaque surrounds, um, you know, put it in a placky color, uh, surrounds the, 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 uh, the, the uh, myelin sheath. And once it surrounds that myelin sheath, it suffocates it and it suffocates the axon of the cell. And once a nerve cell is unable to communicate down the axon, it starts to die. 
And so it starts to kill that nerve cell. And then what happens is, so let's say this nerve cell is communicating with another nerve cell. Well, once this nerve cell isn't receiving information from this cell, it will start to diminish, it will start to weaken. And then as this cell continues and other cells that communicate with that cell start to die off because of this plaque, it creates a kind of a, a, a rolling effect. So uh, it starts to kill off healthier cells that are no longer receiving information from those cells that have that plaque on them, okay? And so this is kind of what, uh, you know, if you look at some of the modern treatments and they talk about, uh, you know, this, this drug that um, uh, reacts to this certain protein or the certain thing, that's what they're talking about is, is drugs that will kind of uh, work at trying to destroy that plaque that builds around those nerve cells, okay? So those are two examples of, of, you know, the operation of the cell, the importance of things like myelin sheath and what happens when the cell gets suffocated. Um, and so does anybody have any questions on that really quick before I move on? Thank you, Madison. Okay. So the other th important part that we'll need to talk about, especially for psychology and especially when we get into different drug treatments for different disorders and whatnot, is the synaptic cleft that uh, contains neurotransmitters. And we'll talk about the different types of neurotransmitters um, and, and what happens when there's too little or there's too much of a neurotransmitter happening in the synaptic cleft. But remember that that's how they communicate. So this electric impulse comes down and then it forces or the release of these vesicles into this, into the, this cleft, this open cleft between cells. And then it's received by this cell, which then sends a message saying, hey, we're ready to go. Or um, in some cases, nope, don't fire. So there's inhibitory and excitatory responses. And in a lot of ways, when we think about, you know, things like decision making and whatnot, and I want you to think about this when you're going into your thinking about your brain, when you're trying to decide whether you're going to go on out Friday night, um, you remember the good times. So those are neurons that are sending excitatory messages. But then you remember about, you know, that one time or those other times that uh, um, maybe things didn't go so right. It wasn't such a good weekend. And those are inhibitory signals trying to dampen your behavior or your behavioral responses. And so that's kind of a kind of a literal behavioral example of inhibitory versus excitatory responses when we think about it from a psychological perspective. And that's what we think goes on in, in between these cells. Okay. Um, I mentioned there, there are major uh, neurotransmitters, so we have acetylcholine, which is associated with movement and automatic functioning. It also is, is important when we start talking about learning and memory. Um, um, we know that uh, when, when we get into the hypothalamus and the thalamic area where the acetylcholine 
is very present. Those areas are associated with memory and learning. And we'll see that when acetylcholine is, is at a deficit, that's when we have uh, some memory and, and, and learning issues. Dopamine uh, is our excitatory. The, the main thing that I want people to keep in mind about do dopamine is this is, deals with motivation and reward and planning a behavior, okay? Uh, dopamine, uh, it, it, if we look at it from a drug class, the, 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 the things like methamphetamine, cocaine, um, uh, react or mimic dopamine. And that's what creates those uh, feelings of elation. Um, when we look at uh, dopamine as a, as a uh, chemical, um, the, the, so, uh, you know, um, when does human beings produce the most amount of dopamine in your brain? It's actually when you are having an orgasm. Uh, but I want you to think about this in the sense of when artificially we up dopamine. So when we look at methamphetamine, so if an orgasm is when we produce the most dopamine naturally, methamphetamine tends to uh, produce five times the amount of dopamine than when you have an orgasm. So think about that as why things like methamphetamine and cocaine are so addictive, okay? And um, we'll see that when we get to uh, um, um, uh, the abnormal psychology section and we talk, talk about things like schizophrenia, uh, which is a disorder that is associated with um, 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 delusions of grandeur, delusions of self-deprecation, disorganized thinking, meaning that they just can't think uh, straight or uh, in severe cases, they can't even tell stories correctly. Uh, the most common types of uh, uh, symptoms that people know about with schizophrenia are hallucinations and uh, visual auditory olfactory are the most common or kinesthetic. Okay, what we know about uh, the chemical system in people with schizophrenia is they have their brains tend to be swimming in dopamine. It's a severe overproduction of dopamine. And um, that's also why people who, again, take methamphetamine or, or, or uh, uh, cocaine, they tend to have a lot of paranoia. Uh, you hear people about hallucinating while they're on methamphetamine and those types of drugs and hearing voices. Well, it's doing the same things that we see when, we were, when we're working with people with schizophrenia. Now, one of the main treatments for schizophrenia is to bring down dopamine levels. Okay, so we have a, uh, a class of drugs that try to dampen uh, dopamine or inhibit dopamine being released in the brain. The unfortunate part about this, and it's a fine balance, is that a disorder that is associated with too low levels of dopamine is Parkinson's disorder, where people get severe tremors and uncontrollable movements in their body. And that Parkinson's is associated with low levels of dopamine. And so when we're treating schizophrenia, one of the side effects of a lot of the drugs we use are Parkinson's types of symptoms. And one of the side effects of treating Parkinson's disease is they tend, is, is especially if it's not prescribed properly and monitored properly, is we start to see more schizophrenic type of symptomology. And so those two are kind of associated with each other. 
And so we'll talk a lot about dopamine through this through this class um, um, and, and kind of how it's how it works with different disorders, but also where it works with things like um, motivation and reward and how it rewards our system. Um, and, and, and we'll take a closer look at this as we move through the semester. GABA is an inhibitory uh, type of uh, medication. So this is, this is one that inhibits different things such as uh, controlling the nervous system, participation in moods. And GABA is, you know, a lot of times used uh, for people with heart conditions or medications that react to GABA. So you've heard of GABA inhibitors and those types of things. Uh, a lot of them is used with, for example, heart patients who um, have high blood pressure or something. And, and so they use a drug that re sends an inhibitory uh, um, um, signal to that area of the body. It also can be, uh, uh, you know, um, um, an antagonist for people who have mood disorders. So a lot of times, uh, um, uh, if you're taking an antidepressant, they say don't take that antidepressant if you're also on a GABA type of uh, medications because there's a severe interaction that can occur. Okay. Uh, some other important ones are glutamate. Um, and the, again, this is another one, much like acetylcholine, that participates in learning and memory, which we'll get to. Uh, norepinephrine. Um, uh, this one we will talk about when our system becomes very aroused. Norepinephrine is very much associated with things like anxiety and arousal, uh, vigilance, uh, and mood. Um, and so when we think about what's called a um, sympathetic response, uh, to the body where the body is preparing for fight or flight, uh, norepinephrine plays a large role in that, that system. And we'll talk more about that system when we get to uh, the central, the divisions of the central nervous system as we move along. Probably a very common um, uh, uh, neurotransmitter that's talked a lot about in the area of psychology is serotonin because it participates in mood and sleep. Um, many of your antidepressants and anti-anxiety medications work on the serotonin level to increase the level of serotonin in the body system. And so um, um, uh, this is, this is a, 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 a chemical that uh, tends to be very important when we talk about things like mood, um, consistency, and sleep. So, uh, this is one we will talk about really when we get to things like emotions and those. Now, keep in mind, uh, I mentioned last week that we talk about emotions and motivation in the same context. And so serotonin deals with mainly mood, emotions, and affect. Dopamine plays a role in motivation. And these two have an antagonistic um, relationship. When we have high levels of dopamine, we have low levels of serotonin. When we have high levels of serotonin, we have low levels of dopamine. And so we will talk about this more, especially when we talk about mood disorders, because we're finding that uh, for, so we can uh, increase serotonin levels, which uh, uh, give more of a flat affect instead of a depressed affect to the individual. 
but that also has had an effect on a lot of people's motivation levels. And that's why a, a lot of individuals, and there's a lot of warning on, on, um, um, on, on antidepressants that specifically work on the serotonin level, where you might experience things like sexual dysfunction, uh, motivational issues that, that are associated with uh, physiological processes. And that's why those, the, those side effects exist. Um, and we'll look at this relationship when we get to um, 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 depression, because what we're finding is, is that for a lot of individuals, we tend to need a dual medication that works both on the serotonin system and the dopamine system. So, but we'll get to that uh, as we move through the, 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 the semester, especially when we get into uh, psychological or, or mental disorders, okay? Um, we also have something called neuropeptides, and these regulate activities of other neurons, uh, and, and we really won't get into um, um, uh, these very much, uh, but we do need to talk about, we do have echoclinin, which relieves pain and stress in the body, so this is not in the brain region, but in the uh, uh, external or the, the peripheral system outside the spinal cord, and endorphins that release pituitary gland that help relieve things like pain. So we'll talk a little bit about these as we move along, okay? Okay, so that's the nerve cell and the different uh, types of neurotransmitters. Is there any questions on, on those two systems or, uh, and neurotransmitters and the like? Okay, hearing none, I do want to just take a short break before we get into the structures of the brain. So let's go ahead and take a short break and we will come in region. So let me bring up my... Okay. There's two regions of the brain that we really need to talk about in two types of divisions. The first one is the limbic system, um, which, which we're going to combine with the brain stem, even though they're two set, kind of separate systems, but they work very closely together. And so this is gonna be kind of the first area that we're gonna look at. And then the second area is the cerebral cortex, okay? Now, the purpose behind this division is when we look at different species, including humans, we find that pretty much all species who have a brain, that have a, a developed brain, have a limbic system and what would be analogous to a brainstem dependent on whether it's crustaceous or, or not. Um, that, that pretty much we can look across species and find these different structures, okay? What differs among a lot of species is the, the amount and the size of the cerebral cortex, okay? And, and yes, there is some, now, dependent upon the species function will determine uh, how much growth has occurred in the cerebral cortex. 
which we'll get to in a minute and I'll explain here in a minute, but I want to start with the limbic system because it has some very important functions. Um, when we look at, for example, uh, in the brain stem and we look at the pons, this reticular formation, which makes up much of this red area right here, really has to do with autonomic functioning. Autonomic functioning such as um, breathing, heart rate, um, uh, hunger, thirst. Um, but we also, and in, in, I think I mentioned this in, in, in the beginning of the class, it also has to do with some things that we think are uniquely human, such as intimate love, uh, which I should note we'll learn actually is not uniquely human. We find it across species in some form or another. But where does intimate love preside? Well, uh, I think I mentioned in the beginning of the class that uh, the majority of psychological theories on love and intimacy we think is a human emotion or an emotional process, which when we start talking about emotions, we're looking at things like the amygdala, the hippocampus, the hypothalamus, um, and so when we do brain research and we, and, and we think we, we should see activity within this region of the brain when someone is thinking of their intimate love, okay? Um, but that's not actually what we find. We find that when we scan your brain and you're thinking about that person that you obsess against there, that the person that's in your, everything goes to the background and they come to the foreground uh, you get excited to see them uh, you feel paranoid when uh, you're not around them a lot okay those are kind of some of the symptoms as we would say as being truly in love with someone it is actually these areas of the brain specifically within the medulla and the reticular formation that start to light up which indicates that uh, things like intimate love is much less of an emotional drive for human beings, but probably is one of our basic human drives, the same as uh, eating, drinking, heart, breath, and all of those different autonomic functions. And when we get to things like human relationships and intimate relationships, this will help explain a lot of things that go wrong in relationships. So why is it that we crave individuals when we break up with them and we get so heartbroken? And uh, when we don't have someone with us, why do we feel things are not how they should be? Well, put it in the terms of hunger and thirst and you'll understand why we go through those processes. But anyways, this is the brainstem. And it really deals with automatic or autonomic functioning in, in the system. I'm going to jump over here to the cerebellum, which is often called the smaller brain or the midbrain. Uh, this uh, brain, this region of the brain deals with coordinated movement. Okay, so the ability to write right, uh, the ability to um, walk in a straight line. Uh, the ability to stay stable and coordinated in, in movement. It even deals with the coordination of language, being able to speak um, um, uh, consistently and, and without uh, much um, um, 
failure. And, you know, uh, when we look at things like uh, drinking, right, and people start to stumble around and, 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 and whatnot, that's because the alcohol is having an effect on the cerebellum system. And that's really what's being affected when we drink uh, things like alcohol and those types of things. Um, and something else that should be noted about the cerebellum is it does sit down here and the skull kind of goes in this direction right here and then we get our neckline right here. Okay, and um, one of the things that uh, we, we, we have recognized is, uh, and this deals with, uh, you know, some of our athletes in the room or people who are interested in going into sports psychology or sports rehabilitation, is if you notice that uh, individuals who, for example, who have been long-term boxers and have gotten a lot of knocks to the head, they tend to lose a lot of their coordination. And, and if you notice, they start to shake a lot. Um, if you listen to some of the old time boxers, they have their, their voice is very uncoordinated um, and they, have, they struggle with those types of things. And that's because what we have found is, is that when you have continued um, hits to the face and to the head, uh, the inside of the skull is not perfectly smooth. In fact, it's kind of almost like a sandpaper. And what we found is, is the continued hits to the, the, the um, skull area or the, the, the face area, it starts to shave off uh, the, the, the lower portions of the cerebellum, which over repeated times is what creates that uh, uncoordinated movement and some of the speech issues that we see with, for example, long-term boxers and the like. So um, that's, a, that's something about the cerebellum and, and how it affects our different behaviors, especially when we're in uh, things that create a lot of uh, uh, brain movement and, and, and trauma. So, all right. So moving along, we're gonna hit the limbic system next. Well, we're not gonna hit it, but we're gonna talk about it. We shouldn't say that, but. The limbic system has some very important functions in that uh, when we talked, for example, the thalamus, some of its most basic biological functions is it regulates different hormonal systems. The thalamus does things like regulate body heat and body temperature. Uh, pituitary gland has a lot to do with hormonal systems. Uh, but when we're talking psychology, we look at specifically things like the hypothalamus, the amygdala, and the hip hippocampus. Amygdala, as I've mentioned, has a, a large association with emotional and emotional states, uh, specifically the ones of fear and anger. Um, the hippocampus and the hypothalamus have a lot to do with memory and memory system and learning. Um, and um, as I've mentioned, I think before, um, is that uh, when we have sensory information, it goes to this system first and then is transmitted up to the uh, cortex where we have our higher thought processes because what it's doing is it's preparing you emotionally and it's going to provide the the cerebral cortex with the associated memories and the associated responses uh, so that when it, information gets to the different areas of the cortex it can make sense of all the information that it's receiving, okay? 
So knowing that, and basically that is, you know, the function of the limbic system, and especially when it comes to psychology, let's go on and talk about the different areas of the cerebral cortex. Okay. So something we should note about, uh, as I, I was alluding to before, about the size and the thickness of the cerebral cortex, it really does, uh, is associated with the, 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 um, 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 the, the main functions of the species. So when we look at birds, for example, who need very acute visual, um, um, uh, visual system, when we look at this uh, auditory uh, cortex back here, the primary auditory and the visual cortex back here, and the associated uh, areas that make sense of the visual system, birds tend to have a larger and thicker cortex in this area. When we look at rodents who rely heavily on hearing, uh, they have uh, here in the auditory areas, which are just behind the um, uh, ear and, and uh, kind of in the temporal area, they have enlarged cortexes in the auditory areas. For humans, uh, we have uh, one of the largest frontal cortexes. Um, and uh, the frontal cortex is associated with things like higher thinking processes, decision making, uh, problem solving, um, consciousness, uh, socialization, those types of things. And it is also the newest part of the cortex. If we look at the evolution of the brain system, the cortex uh, evolved uh, starting, and when we look at development in the, in the womb even, the cortex starts to develop right here, and put this in a different color, uh, the, the cortex the, starts to develop here, and it develops, <laughs> green was a bad choice for that area, it develops this direction, okay? Meaning that when we think about development, the last part of the human brain that develops is the frontal cortex. And this uh, begins to occur, this full development of the frontal cortex starts to occur on average around the age of uh, 18 to 21 to 23 years of age is when this area of the brain becomes fully developed, okay? But that's the developmental trajectory of the, 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 the cortex that sits right on top of the limbic system and receives that sensory and memory information, then processes it, okay? Now, when we look at uh, the different areas, again, prefrontal cortex, again, uh, we look at that and it's plan and uh, execute appropriate behaviors. When we look at Broca's area right here, it deals with speech and muscle uh, uh, um, areas. So it produces, uh, you know, the muscles that produce speech uh, is associated with the Broca's areas. Uh, when we get to kind of this middle area of the brain right here, we have uh, an associated area that uh, processes things like uh, muscle movement and all that. We have a sensory area that really uh, combines sensory information and starts to make sense of it. And then we have a what's called a primary motor cortex and a primary sensory cortex. Uh, 
which communicates with each other to make sure that the sensory information that we're processing and our motor actions are coordinated with each other. And each of these areas are different, associated with different areas of the brain. So, you know, if, if, if this area right here controls the hand for sensory experiences, this direct associated area of, of the motor cortex uh, processes hand, motor movement for the hand. So this is kind of the area that deals with this. Um, and then when we get to the back here, we have the visual area, and then we have the, um, uh, the, the uh, <laughs> I can't think, the, the auditory areas. And then we have this area right here, which is, will become important when we talk about things like disgust is the gastral area. It's the area that signals when we maybe eat something bad and we shouldn't eat it. But it also uh, signals when we don't like something other than food. Um, and so these are the different areas of the cortex so that when we're talking about these, you kind of know um, what, what, what areas that we're looking at. Um, now, we do have, I don't think I have a picture of it. We do have two hemispheres of the brain. So when we look at the top of the brain, we know that we have uh, one hemisphere here and another hemisphere here that are pretty much analogous other than my drawing. And these two areas are uh, uh, connected with, with what's called the corpus callosum, which communicates the two left and right uh, uh, areas of the brain. Um, and, and there's a couple things that we need to talk about, about hemispheric regions of the brain. Uh, the first one is the myth of uh, being left-brained and right-brained. Um, does the left brain make you more creative? Does the right hemisphere of the brain make you more, um, 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 you know, or more analytic? I will tell you, while that's still very much in the popular literature, that those theories have pretty much been debunked. There's really no such thing as left-brained versus right-brained other than in the popular culture. We find that both regions of the brain are, are needed to create creativity and both areas of the brain are necessary to become analytic or, or whatnot. Um, and I should note some notes about the corpus callosum, which uh, connects the two hemispheres of the brain. Um, uh, because it's the largest bundle of nerve cells that, that, that are within the brain system. Um, and it keeps communication between the two hemispheres. Okay. Now there has been some uh, myths and everything about the size and whatnot of the corpus callosum. So, you know, there's been some research that shows the individuals uh, with schizophrenia might have a larger or smaller um, uh, corpus callosum and, and, and people have said, well, there's, there's the reasons for schizophrenia, but, you know, we also find that the, between men and women, there's a differences in sizes in the corpus callosum. Does that make us two different species? Um, evidence is a kind of bleak on that one, but what we do know is it's very important in communicating with both hemispheres of the brain and coordinating the actions between the two hemispheres. In fact, um, it's kind of interesting that uh, if uh, people who are suffering from seizure disorders, um, if the seizures cannot be uh, controlled through medications or other different medical procedures, 
the, the last medical um, um, uh, option is to sever the corpus callosum, okay? Because a lot of seizures uh, deal with a mal uh, um, signaling between the corpus callosum and the two hemispheres, okay? And so one way to relieve it, if it can't be relieved by any other method, is to sever the corpus callosum. And what we found is, is it's kind of interesting, is uh, when you sever the corpus callosum, uh, you actually, uh, your brain start, uh, um, your two hemispheres start operating independent of each other, okay? And in some cases, it can create confusion. So let's say your right hemisphere wants you to turn right, and your left hemisphere will make wants you to turn left, and you will sit there and struggle with your hands about whether you should be going right or left. Uh, because what we have found is when the corpus callosum is severed, the, the two areas of the brain start to try and take over the processes that the other hemisphere was trying to do. When they're connected, we should note that the left hemisphere controls the right motor and sensory movement of the body. And uh, when the right hemisphere controls the left motor and sensory information of the body. But when the corpus callosum is severed, uh, this part of the brain will try to control both. And so will this part of the brain try to control both. Sorry for my crude diagrams, okay? So the last thing that I want to cover, is there any questions about the limbic system and the, uh, the, 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 the um, cerebral cortex uh, as it's been described? Okay, thank you, Amelia. Okay. I'm hoping a lot of this is review, so. The second, kind of the last topic I want to talk about in our last few minutes is just the different divisions of the nervous system, and it was mentioned in the nerve, um, 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 nerve uh, video uh, about the difference between what's called the central nervous system and the peripheral nervous system. The central nervous system contains the brain and the spinal cord where the peripheral nervous system contains everything outside of the spinal cord, all the nerve cells and the, uh, the uh, sensory cells that then send information to the central nervous system. These two systems can be divided in this way. So we have the nervous system that's processed, in, interprets, stores information, issues orders to muscles and glands, uh, and consists of the brain, and the spinal cord that bridges between the brain and the peripheral system. So the spinal cord is really what communicates mostly with the peripheral system. The peripheral system can be divided into two uh, different systems. One is the somatic nervous system, which controls muscle movement, and the autonomic nervous system, and autonomic uh, associated with automatic, regulates things like glands, blood vessels, and internal organs. The autonomic nervous system can be broken down into the sympathetic nervous system or the parasympathetic nervous system. The sympathetic nervous system reacts to when we think that we're in danger. It prepares us for that thing known as fight or flight. 
So it mobilizes the body for action and energy output. The parasympathetic system is the system that calms us down, brings us to a quieter state, okay? Now, I wanna talk a little bit about this parasympath the, the sympathetic system as we react to stressors in our environment and whatnot and how it works is basically, if you think about fight or flight, what is required to either fight or flight? So fight or run, okay? Is it requires the external limbs, it requires your hands, it requires your legs. And so when you have a sympathetic nervous response, basically what is happening is energy is start to be reserved. So the, this, the body will start to kind of shut down any unnecessary organ systems, such as the digestive system, such as um, the urinary and the sexual systems. And it will send energy and, and whatnot to your uh, legs and arms, which prepares you to fight or flight, okay? Now there's, there's two kind of situations where, where this is an example. Uh, years, years ago, when I first started teaching this, um, you know, and, and we talked about old school uh, police officers and whatnot, and they talked about when they came up onto a, a fight between two people, before they got directly involved, they would smell and they would look at the individual's, uh, you know, crotch area, okay? Now, uh, it wasn't for perversion reasons, I'll, I'll, believe me, but it was because what they were seeing is to see if the person is so far into the sympathetic response, into the fight response, that the body has dumped all of its digestive uh, food and waste, because all of that is producing energy and, and it's producing, it's wasting energy that could be, should be used for fight or flight, okay? And so they look to see if the person has urinated or defecated, okay? This is why in movies, when people are getting prepared to go into battle, um, I remember seeing this in a, you know, the, what is that gladiator movie where the individual is getting ready to go out and they're urinating on themselves. We see this in the battlefield a lot. That is, again, the body preparing itself to either fight or flight, okay? Now, our system was meant to respond to acute stresses. Uh, but in our modern time, we have uh, non-acute, we have chronic stressors. We worry about money, we worry about work, we worry, and we have chronic stressors that occur in our life. And when stressors become too chronic, we get stuck in a sympathetic uh, mode of existence, which means that if you know somebody who is very anxious, who is very... Uh, always worried, always stressed, um, and you notice that they pop a lot of antidepressant, not antidepressants, um, anti-acid medications, and they're always having stomach issues, and they're always, well, that's, that, that's one of the signs that they're stuck in a sympathetic nervous response, because that those systems are not being fed the proper uh, energy to properly digest or take care of the digestive system. Okay, what we want and, and what meditation tries to do, what uh, mindfulness tries to do, what your counselor tries to do 
is to get your when you're heavily stressed or you have a lot of anxiety is to get your body to knock itself out of the sympathetic response and put it into the parasympathetic response where energy starts to return to the central or core areas of the body and it tries to quiet us down and get everything to start regulating in a more evenly distributed pattern throughout the body okay and so when we get to stress later in the course, when we talk about those things, and when we get to things like anxiety disorders and phobias, we will come back to this uh, system within the nervous system, okay? I think, all right, I think that's it. All right, I'm gonna stop here. Stop recording.